the world that, uh, that you wonder, do I really have to rescue them? <laughs> Peewee's repulsed and maybe fearful of the snakes. Are, are there people that honestly you are repulsed by or maybe you fear? Or maybe it's not so intense language. Maybe it's just you don't have as much concern for them. You have a little harder time loving them. Maybe it's somebody who's, who's wronged you. Or maybe uh, somebody who's deprived you of something or just made life more difficult for you. Maybe it's someone who just has different interests from you. You know, it's a, it's a Raiders fan, and, and you're not, and that's hard for you to, to love. Um, maybe someone with different beliefs. Maybe someone who voted for a different president. Whatever it might be that you think, ah, I, I, just, I just don't know what to do with that person. Do I really, Lord, have to rescue them as well? Yes, <laughs> we do. Uh, who do you need help from the Lord to love? Because our love tends to be small. It tends to be uh, sectarian. It tends to be conditional. But God's love is enormous. It's universal. It's unconditional. It's a totally different kind of love. I love the words from um, Stuart Townsend in How Deep the Father's Love for Us. He says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. And how is it evidence that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure? That is big, big love. We'll see as we, we look at our last chapter of Jonah today that the main idea of the book and of this chapter, I believe, is that God cares deeply for all the peoples of the world and so should you. <laughs> but the problem is we, at times, struggle with that. Sometimes it's hard. Uh, Jonah definitely struggled with this. When he thought of the, the cruel Ninevites with their, their atrocious war crimes and their fearsome power, uh, he didn't want to go there at all. He ran the other way. And so we see in chapter 1 of Jonah, um, God sends them to Nineveh, and Jonah runs the other way. God uses the sailors of his escape ship to teach him a lesson about what God really values. Then in chapter 2, we see his song or psalm of deliverance from inside the fish. Great place to write poetry. And then chapter 3, we see uh, that Jonah gets a second chance and Nineveh gets a second chance as just a miraculous, dramatic uh, revival breaks out in the great city of Nineveh. Just unbelievable, the whole city from from the king down, um, repents and turns to the Lord. And here's how uh, the chapter ends in chapter 3, uh, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see the end of Jonah 3, uh, this great nation repented, and God turned his, um, his demeanor toward Nineveh. Where it was judgment, he showed mercy. And uh, it's just an incredible account of the kinds of lives that God can change. So now as we enter into chapter 4, we'll see what Jonah thought about that. <laughs> and if you've read the story, you're familiar with it, uh, you know his response was uh, undesirable. And uh, over the next several minutes, we'll look at three lessons about the extent of God's love 
God's great big love. Three lessons about the extent of God's love. So if you are following along, we're in Jonah 4, and if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. Uh, They're spread throughout the pews, and uh, it's on page 775, I believe. And uh, it starts like this. I'm going to just read the first few verses. Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Yeah, what an insult to give somebody. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And I think the first lesson just right off the bat is that about the extent of God's love is God's care extends far beyond what is deserved. And the reason is it's based on his character. Verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was really angry. He was really angry at the biggest revival ever. (laughs) The great, powerful nation and everybody repents and turns to the Lord at his uh, shortest sermon ever. This should be you know, an occasion for really great joy and celebrating, but he's angry. And why is he angry? He says this is why he ran in the first place is because he didn't want God to show mercy to Nineveh. He was afraid. In the back of his mind, he knew what kind of God the real God is and that God is gracious and merciful, and he didn't want to bring the message of that to Nineveh. He thought, they don't deserve it. Jonah does a lot of pathetic things, and he's, um, he's messed up in his thinking a lot of things, but one thing he gets absolutely right, and that is, what is God like? Because he says very clearly, you are a gracious God. You are a merciful God. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love, and you just love to relent from disaster. And he is totally correct. That's what kind of God we have. There's a a song I really love, uh, Good, Good Father by Chris Tomlin. And it starts out, oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. You know, everybody thinks, oh, God's this way or that way. But I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It sets the context of that relationship. Like, this is the kind of God that we have. His care extends way beyond what's deserved because it's based on his character. And Jonah's reaction after this is an all-time pathetic low. And he says, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What an absurd response to the mercy of God. Like, if you're not going to kill them, then kill me. He was that far gone. And God asked uh, the appropriate question, uh, do you do well to be angry? Is Is that good for you? Does that work? well for you? Is that right to be angry? Uh, And the answer is, no, it's not right for him to be angry. But 
But was Jonah right about the Ninevites? Did they deserve judgment? Did, did the Ninevites deserve judgment? They were, they were wicked beyond imagination. I think the answer is this. They deserve judgment exactly as much as you and I do. Yes, they did. And that's the message to Jonah. Yeah, Jonah, they deserve judgment just exactly as much as you do. And uh, that, let that kind of wave, that, that wave rush over you and, and sink in. Um, we have this explained in the New Testament in a variety of ways. Um, the whole third chapter of Romans is a good place to start. And verses, the end of verse 22 and into 23, it says, For there is no distinction, like there's no distinction between um, those with the law, the Jewish people, and those without the law. It's all the same. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's really what we all deserve. When we used to live in Escondido, we had, um, we had some neighbors who had this big dog um, I couldn't find a picture of the dog that's as ugly as the dog that was our neighbor's, but this is the closest I could find. And it's this, uh, it was this ferocious um, pit bull, and some of you may love them, and that's, that's great and everything. And this, this dog was on a big chain, and it would just make laps in the yard all night, and it would kick its bowl around, and it was just a big, mean-looking dog. But not to its owner. You know, it, it was fine with its owner. Actually, the grandfather that lived that, it live there, um, he would have to fight with the dog. But, but the thing is, when you, when you own a dog and you have it on a leash and it, you kind of control it, uh, this is a lot of times how we wish God was. We wish that God was, you know, he comes up and he wants to, to, to lick our hand and snuggle, but he wants to be ferocious with all of our enemies. We like to imagine God like that. God, do, do my bidding you know, sick them, get those ones. I don't like them. But for me, like, you know, give me affection and wag your tail and whatever. God, God's not like that. God is not on a leash. As uh, the Narnia books tell us, God's not a tame lion. Aslan's not a tame lion. Uh, we don't get to choose who God is ferocious with and who he's gentle with. Don't for a moment think that the gospel is about who deserves what? Because God's care extends beyond what is deserved. And I think in this book of Jonah, uh, the reader, uh, the original readers, uh, Israelites, and now us, we're supposed to, I think, identify with Jonah. You know, we're, we're the religious person, etc. And so the book speaks very loud uh, to those of us in that scenario. Um, and in, in it, we see that God's character is merciful, loving, and compassionate. And Jonah's character is the opposite. The intent, I think, is to point the spotlight into our hearts and say, hmm, what, does my, um, what is my character? We see that God deeply cares about people, but what does Jonah deeply care about? And that leads us to our next lesson about the extent of God's care. And that is God's care extends far beyond our care. His is selfless. Uh, here's how much uh, Jonah cared. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of it and he made a booth for himself 
there, and he sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would become of the city. So he made this little make-do shelter and sat out there and waited to see if Nineveh would be destroyed. Would, would God you know, totally relent and change his mind, or is he going to give him something? You know, is the earthquake going to come and swallow him up? Is some uh, you know, army going to sweep in from the west, or what's going to happen? And he just waited. This was Jonah's heart. He wanted to see Nineveh go down. What does Jonah care about? Well, he cares about his own comfort. In the next verses, uh, starting in verse 6, it says, this is a big object lesson that God provides for uh, Jonah and for us. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to rescue him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. This might be the first time we saw him exceedingly glad in this book uh, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. What does Jonah care about? He cares about his comfort. <laughs> Where God cares about the people. And w- you could tell how much he cares about his comfort when you see what happens when it's disrupted. Uh, the end of verse 8. And he asked that he might die. He is just so dramatic in this, uh, this chapter. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live. But then God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This was a pathetic little pity party uh, of Jonah. This sense of, uh, of entitlement, of self-absorbed, you know, his little shelter, his little plant. His little shade was as big as his mind could get at that moment. In contrast, God's love is selfless, and it's enormous. Here's a really great illustration of that, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve. And not only that, but to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the ultimate example of the selfless love of God that he gave. So while we tend to, you know, shrink in our worlds and think about ourselves, God is so selfless in his love and in his care, his concern for people in the world. It's so easy for us when our worlds get small to to be kind of out of whack in our um, in our priorities, in our even sensibilities, in the way we evaluate things. Um, I saw a, uh, a comic years ago on this theme, and I tried to update it and recreate it for you today. It's Food Crisis. And as the guy is sitting there uh, reading the nutritional facts, he's just blown away. 18 grams of fat in a venti mocha. This is shocking. And in the background on the news, 20 million starving to death in South Sudan, and just kind of blows right by. It's like we, we get so out of proportion of what things matter and what things don't matter. And we have to intentionally fight against our little shrinking world that gets smaller and smaller instead of God who has such a big, big care, a big, big world. 
He's preparing a big, big table with settings for all different kinds of people there. I wonder if some settings have forks and knives and others have chopsticks or maybe some have I don't know what. Um, But he's preparing a place, a table for all kinds of people in the world. I'm sure glad that God's care is a lot bigger than mine. Uh, this week I got in the mail the most recent uh, Voice of the Martyrs um, magazine. I don't know if some of you get that. It's really great for kind of recalibrating what's important uh, in, in the world. And this um, kind of reports on and requests prayer for those who are followers of Christ who are in places where they are really suffering because of that. Um, let me just put that. If you just check out persecution.com, such an inviting title. Um, but it's memorable. Um, uh, explore that site, and some things are just so heartbreaking and so inspiring and so um, re- recalibrating. Uh, I'd like to read just the, the opening of the magazine where the, um, the editor makes some comments. It's, it's, well, it's, it's about a page long, so bear with me. He says, I'm continually amazed and challenged by the boldness and the obedience of our persecuted brothers and sisters. I think of one brother named Kabil Matar who shares the gospel in Pakistan in this certain area. On one occasion, Kabil was confronted by the Taliban and discovered to be carrying a gospel tract which they considered blasphemous. After being taken to a training camp, Kabil was, Kabil was interrogated, he was stripped naked, and he's brutally beaten and then locked in a bathroom. That night, however, an acquaintance helped him escape, and two hours later, he was home. His wife, who had worried that she might never see him again, burst into tears of joy. Well, the next day, he did what any reasonable father and husband might do. He packed up his belongings. He moved, them to his, he moved his family to a safer area. Shortly after moving, he learned from Voice of Martyrs workers that Christians all over the world have been praying for him during his captivity. The faithfulness of those praying believers caused a change in his heart and in his wife's. He says, I was afraid and had fear, but when I heard that people were praying for me, I was encouraged. That moment I decided to go back and to preach in that same area. My fear is gone. The attitude of Kabil Matar and other frontline workers like him brings to mind the words of Christ in Matthew 10, 28 that says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. For these frontline workers, the real danger is in choosing to protect their physical bodies and neglect the souls of those who are lost. Punchline. (laughs) Yet in the U.S., where we do not face kidnapping and torture for evangelizing, we find endless excuses for refusing to share Christ. For instance, with our Muslim neighbors, we're too busy, we don't have adequate evangelistic training, they won't want to hear the gospel, or much worse, they don't deserve to hear it. And it's really powerful words from someone who works with those on the front line. This was Jonah's basic problem is they don't deserve to hear the good news. (laughs) That's, That's what his problem was. Don't let that be your problem. Don't let that be my problem. So did the Ninevites deserve to be told about God's love? We already decided that they deserve to be be judged. Did they deserve to be told about God's love? I think the answer is yes, exactly as much as you and I do. 
the very same. God's care for all the peoples of the world extends, thankfully, far beyond our care. But we want to be careful to not make this an excuse, like, oh, well, that's how God is. Of course, God's big. He can care big. I'm just a little guy. I can only care little. Um, That brings us to our third lesson about the extent of God's care. And that is, God wants to extend his care through us. To love God is to love like God. To love like God does. Here's the conclusion of the book and of of this chapter uh, in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said uh, to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not even labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle or many animals? When I read Jonah years ago, uh, this felt like such a weird ending. You know, it kind of ends with a question, they, did they just not really finish it or whatever. On reading it again and again, I realized the ending's genius. <laughs> it poses a question to Jonah, which is a question for all of us who read the book. It puts Jonah, a spotlight on Jonah's skewed priorities and potentially on ours. He says, you pity the plant, you pity your comfort, whatever that is. Should I not pity Nineveh? You care about your own little comfort world. Should I not care about thousands of perishing souls? It's like, well, when you put it that way, (laughs) maybe I was wrong. That question just lingers there. It haunts the readers. They close the book. It's like, this is the question we all need to wrestle with. You know, throughout the whole book, almost whenever it says Nineveh, it says, Nineveh, that great city. Like, this was a really big place, really powerful place. And uh, so I did a little Google search of what are the biggest cities, um, or more technically city areas, uh, cities and surrounding. Um, I can't even say all of them, but Karachi in Pakistan, 27 million just in that, in that city. That's uh, primarily Muslim. And the next two contenders are Shanghai and Beijing and in China, 24 and 21 million, uh, mostly just irreligious. Or, or folk religion, maybe 10%. Um, and then we have uh, Bangladesh next, 17 million. That, that's just in the city of Dhaka, if that's how you say it. Then, of course, Delhi, India is on there, 17 million, primarily Hindu, and maybe increasingly intensely Hindu. And uh, so these, these are uh, the great cities of today, some, uh, some of many of them. As if it was being written about... Uh, in the Bible, it would have said, you know, Shanghai, that great city, you know, that great city, that great city. What is our heart like for these great cities and those who are perishing? I did just some real rough number math based on um, current average uh, death rates per 1,000 and stuff like that. And uh, here's what I came up with. Just in Karachi, Pakistan, one city in one nation, Uh, There's about 178,000 deaths per year in that city. This would be like the total destruction of everyone in Nineveh, you know, every year. 
it would be like the total population of Cambria uh, every 13 years, I mean, every 13 days uh, in a year. So, like if Cambria just got destroyed by a meteorite or something, and then two weeks later that happened to another town like Cambria, et cetera, on and on and on every two weeks. That's, that's like kind of the rate in one city, in one country, of those who are perishing. And by and large, these people don't know about Jesus. They don't know the true story of what God is really like and that he sent his son. They are perishing. I think for us this has really big implications, and I want to suggest maybe on three different levels. Individually, think about, as we started off, that person maybe who's wronged you, that person who's different from you, you don't understand, that um, obnoxious neighbor, that difficult family member, whoever it might be that's just difficult to love in your life. Well, God's care is much, much bigger than that. And we think about our own comfort compared with the perishing of souls. That should just shake us to life and say, you know, go tell them, go love them, go welcome them. I also think there's a big implication for just, you know, people groups in general, you know, groups who have immigrated here, um, people who come from other countries to study here, maybe, maybe nations we see in the news where terrible things are happening, um, uh, people groups where they don't have the language, uh, they don't have the Bible in their language yet, and we should be doing something about that. We should be uh, loving our neighbors who are different from us. We should be supporting missionaries and going and telling and speaking and loving for Christ's sake. I also think there's some uh, implications as a church. I, I think, like people, churches tend to kind of shrink in and get small in the sense of uh, we start thinking about our own comfort, you know, our own, our own seat or our own music, or our own decor, or our own parking space, whatever it might be that we're kind of attached to, uh, it's easy for us to get smaller and smaller and realize there's people right here in town who honestly haven't really had the gospel clearly shared to, shared with them. And uh, we need to be about that. <laughs> That's what God's about. He has a big, big love, and he wants to extend that through you. To love God is to love God like God. So you're just kind of in, in conclusion. The extent of God's care for people, well, fortunately, it extends far beyond what's deserved or we'd all be left out. It's based on his, his character that is full of compassion and second chances and mercy. And second, his care extends far beyond our care, which is also a really good thing because our care tends to be kind of uh, focused on our, ourselves. And third, God wants to extend his care through us, through you and through me, so that we can love like God loves. Here's three, I think, really important questions. Maybe it's just another way to say this is, what is God like? Well, God is gracious and compassionate and full of mercy, as we see in Jonah. What does God like? He likes people. (laughs) He made us in his image. He made us like him, and and he he loves us. I I know that like is not adequate there. How to be God-like? Well, love like he does. Love like God does. Here's our challenge, the challenge for Jonah, (laughs) the challenge for you, the challenge for me, is just ask for God's help. 
that we could learn to love the lost like God does. Those people, those neighbors, those people across the world, those people on the news, whatever it might be, that we can love them like God does. Ask God to make your world, your care, your concern grow instead of shrink. And like Pee Wee Herman in a pet store, you don't get to decide who deserves to be rescued. Even if you think that person's a snake, do your very best to save them from the encroaching fire. Um, I'm so glad we have a God who is huge and he has a compassion that is huge. And I just want to give him thanks right now. Uh, Lord God, you are a great, great God and you love us so well and not just us. You love the world so well that you gave your son so that we might have.